0: Well, do take your Bibles, if you've not already, and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Today, as we continue in our studies through Luke's Gospel, we're making it into the third chapter, uh, and this really begins the main central section of Luke's Gospel, uh, where he outlines the ministry of Christ, but begins with the ministry of Christ's forerunner, John the Baptist. Uh, this major section actually runs to the end of verse 20. Uh, So over the next two weeks, we're going to split it up. We're going to take a little bit more than half today, reading verses 1 through 14, and looking at the preaching ministry of John the Baptist uh, before we uh, see him point to Christ next week. Uh, So today, uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. You can find that on page 858 of our church Bibles. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, and before we read, please join me in prayer. O oh Lord, our gracious God, we thank you for this, your living and active word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who is at work in the hearts of your people to connect a living word with dead hearts and dead sinners, to raise us up and to give us life by your word. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts even today, and that we would see and believe and trust more in Christ than we do in ourselves, that we would flee from our sin, and that we would turn to you in repentance. That you would give us continued repentance or new repentance for many in this room. And we pray that you would do this work so that you would be glorified among your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked places shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits, in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading, and to its hearing. One of uh, the strange things about preachers, and uh, there, are, there are lots of strange things about preachers, by the way. That's, a, that's another uh, message for another time. But one of the many strange things about preachers is that preachers are probably the only people who have favorite preachers. If you ask most normal Christians, who's your favorite preacher, they'd probably shrug. You never thought that, that's a sort of thing that you would rank or, or have favorites. And I don't know, maybe somebody would, would list their own pastor, perhaps. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe they would tell you of a minister who made a profound impression upon them in their younger years. Maybe they'd just list the most famous television uh, preacher they could think of. But ask a preacher about his favorite preacher, and you are in for a 45-minute conversation. And the thing is that preachers listen to other preachers the way that college quarterbacks watch professional football. We all have uh, our favorites, and if you get enough of us in a room, uh, someone will spark a debate over whether James Boyce or John MacArthur is the greatest of all time. Now, that's actually a trick question uh, because it is clear that Sinclair Ferguson is the goat. Uh, But... Uh, several years ago, I, I realized that I had fallen in, unbeknownst to me, unintentionally, I had fallen into this, uh, this trend of listening to a bunch of preachers that all had the same thing, one thing in common, and that was that they were Scottish. <laughs> now, I think that's probably a Presbyterian thing, but over the years, since then, I have been trying to broaden my horizons, and so I've begun listening to a few Welshmen as well. <laughs> Yeah, lots of jokes today. This is not where I was headed. Uh, now, the point is, though, in, in all of this, is that it's kind of strange for normal Christians to have favorite preachers, but it's the most normal thing in all the world for preachers to have favorite preachers. And so we're not surprised at all to find that even Jesus, uh, even Jesus had his own favorite preacher. Jesus' favorite preacher was uh, the greatest prophet ever born of a woman, his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, if we were to judge by today's standards, there is no reason for thinking that John should have any kind of following at all. John is not one of these gentle gurus who likes to pat everybody on the back and give them five easy steps to self-fulfillment. John is a firebrand. John is a bold preacher of sin and damnation and deep repentance, And it didn't matter to John what uh, and who was in his audience. It didn't matter uh, if his listeners consisted of grandmothers or gladiators. He would preach to the multitudes, and he would preach to the monarchs, and he was unafraid of grabbing people by the scruff of their iniquity and dragging them to the place that they had to reckon with God's coming justice and their need for mercy. And in fact, that is what made John so great, is that he did two things that all good preachers ought to do. But he prepared people for repentance. And then he pointed repentant people to Jesus. And as I mentioned before, today we're going to focus on the first of those two. We're going to focus on John's ministry of preparation to get people ready through repentance to see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But actually what we're doing as we're looking at, at John's ministry of repentance is that we're looking at the Lord's ministry of repentance. Because what we see in these passages is not just some man out there somewhere with his own message to speak, but it is the Lord establishing this pattern and showing us this pattern that he uses over and over again to prepare the hearts of people to come to Jesus. It is the same pattern that repeats itself every time anyone is converted to the Lord. And it's the same pattern that repeats itself over and over again in the lives of any true believer. And it is this pattern that shows up Uh, When God's Word confronts our complacency and leads us into repentance. Those, by the way, are our three headings for today. We're going to look first at God's powerful Word, and then our dangerous complacency, and finally, true repentance. God's powerful Word, our dangerous complacency, and true repentance. Now, we begin looking at God's Word, and that really is the focus Uh, of the the passage, and especially the beginning verses. Despite that list of impressive-looking people in the beginning there, verses 1 and 2, the real action actually is happening out in the wilderness where God's word comes to John, the the son of Zechariah. And in fact, all of those lists of names and all the people in their high positions, it's really meant to draw our attention, not to them, but to what God is doing. In part, this list uh, is Luke's continued... uh, continued desire uh, and his commitment to provide us with an orderly account that he told us about back in chapter 1. He's triangulating all of these things in history sometime uh, around the year A.D. 27, depending on uh, when you calculate the beginning of Tiberius' reign. But it all happens sometime in actual history, and that's what he's doing with this list. But more than history, uh, Luke is giving us a picture of the hopelessness of God's people. That's the impression that we get as we start to filter through who these people are and where they are in power uh, as all of these events are unfolding. Luke starts at the top of the Roman food chain, as you might expect. He starts with Tiberius Caesar, uh, this paranoid, tyrannical potentate. Tiberius is a man that none of the historians have much of anything good to say about. Uh, Tacitus, the, the Roman historian, described Tiberius as infamous for his cruelty. Plunged into every wickedness and disgrace, and who simply indulged his own inclinations. So that's who's ruling the empire at the time of the beginning of John's ministry. And then you can continue going on, and we won't take a lot of time, but you know a little bit about Pontius Pilate, that waffling governor, that spineless man who declared Jesus Christ guilty publicly three times, and yet still handed him over to be executed because he was watching out for his own position. Then we hear about the sons of Herod the Great who wanted uh, to kill all of the children in Bethlehem to find that one promised Messiah. But now his sons are mere petty princes dancing on the strings of Rome and fighting over the scraps of their father's poisoned legacy. And so Herod Antipas and Philip. And then there's uh, another ruler who would have been lost to history were it not for Luke's gospel and for a temple in scripture and found two centuries ago. But finally, and perhaps most tellingly, is this dual priesthood that we, we find in verse 2 of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, uh, Luke knows his scripture, and he is aware that the Old Testament uh, tells us that the high priesthood should be held by only one person at a time, and that it is a position that is to be held for life. And so he knows that technically speaking, both Annas and Caiaphas are not actually high priests. But he is telling it like it is. You see, Annas was the high priest, at least until A.D. 15, when the Romans stepped in to the Jewish religion and pulled him out of his position of authority. And then, sort of in the backgrounds, he is is the power behind the position. Uh, After Annas came a succession of four of his sons that each held the high priesthood. And now Caiaphas is his son-in-law, and it just reeks of nepotism. And it's all of this political wrangling and all of these things happening here, and he's telling us well, you know, Caiaphas is there, but Annas, he's, he's still in the background. And when Jesus is arrested, he's actually taken first to Annas and then passed off uh, to Caiaphas. But it doesn't really matter uh, in terms of who has the position and who holds the power. Both of these men are wicked men. Annas and Caiaphas, we read in the New Testament, are part uh, of the cadre of men who are uh, conspiring against the Christ, They are the ones who are willing to buy his betrayal and to hear the testimony of false witnesses. They are the ones who are willing to deliver him over to death. And so as Luke is moving in concentric circles, he's moving from the Roman palace down to the Jerusalem temple, but he's giving us an increasingly hopeless picture of the world at this time. It is a dark and a gloomy period. When injustice reigns from top to bottom, and it is now that the Lord steps into his world, to change the course of human history. And he does it the way that he so often does it. He does it by sending his powerful word. Verse 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And it's a subtle thing. But all of you English lovers, all of you grammarians out there, instantly recognize that in this sentence that stretches uh, over these first two verses, that really is the main clause. And what does that mean? It means that everything else, everyone else that has just been listed is subordinate to what the Lord is doing through his word. They are mere background. It is a backdrop. It is as though the Lord is setting a stage play, and he's putting on this play for all the world to see, and God is shining his spotlight on this long-haired, wild-eyed prophet somewhere in the desert and he's the one who's raising his voice, and he's wagging his finger, and he's calling for repentance, and he's the one who catches your attention, and he moves your soul to tears, and you see what's happening there. But back behind him, somewhere in the shadows, is this lifeless cardboard cutout, and it's painted to look something like Caesar, something like political power, something like nepotism and, and, and power plays of humanity. And it's there, and it makes it all more lifelike, and it fills out the picture, but none of that is the point. The point is that the Lord is able to send his word into his world to prepare his people. That's what's happening in this passage, that God is sending his powerful word. And by his word and through this prophet, God is working a ministry of preparation. Luke uh, references Isaiah. Chapter 40, verses 3 and 5, that's the quotation that we have here for us. Uh, And he explains that uh, that John is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now the way it happened uh, in ancient cities is that if you were a monarch, you were a king, and you were going to, to visit some far off corner of your realm, the first thing you would do is send a messenger before you. You would send him out to get everything ready. Specifically, that messenger would would rally the people and gather them together in the town and the city precincts and they would go on an infrastructure campaign. They would get rid of the potholes. They would flatten the roads. They would straighten everything and, and essentially roll out the red carpet for the king who was coming. But in Isaiah's mind, under the inspiration of the spirit, he is envisioning a much greater king and a much greater preparation. Not just one who fixes potholes, but the Lord of creation who establishes a super highway right through the wilderness. He envisions this God who will come and and level whole mountains and fill up entire valleys. This king who's going to turn Colorado into Kansas. And what we need to know is that the Lord is not actually interested in all of this language and all of this metaphor. He's not actually interested in rearranging the, uh, the geography around Jerusalem. But he is interested in dealing with the geography of human hearts. The Lord is the one who comes by his word to prepare his people. To tear down the mountains of iniquity that stand as fortress walls around our inner person, and around our hearts. The ways that we keep God at arm's length and we keep ourselves feeling safe behind the walls of these mountains of sin and our, our little indulgences. The Lord is coming to lift up and to fill in valleys of depression and bitterness and unbelief that steal our joy in the Lord. He is working in in the crooked bent of our hearts where we are looking and and working in our own way toward our disordered desires and the Lord is coming by his word and saying, let me straighten that for you. Let me prepare the way for my king to come in. He's working in the rough places of our circumstances. He's reminding us that he is able to redeem all the years and all the opportunities that we've wasted by following the lust of our eyes and the pride of life. God is in the business of preparing the geography of human hearts, and he does it by sending his word to his people. Can you imagine some of the other things that the Lord might have used? All of creation is in the palm of his hand. Why not make a decree through this Caesar? Uh, whose heart is in the hand of the Lord. W- why not uh, give us uh, a new ceremony through the, the ministry of the temple and the priests and everybody who is there? Why not, uh, why not legislate morality uh, by the edge of the sword? The Lord uses something that is more powerful than all of those things. The Lord sends His holy word. This is how we find it in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. More powerful than kings. More powerful than weapons. More powerful than than ceremonies. The Lord is sending his word through his prophet to prepare the hearts of his people. But if you've experienced it, you already know something of the power of God's word. If you know what it is to have his word come into your life and shake you up a little bit and expose those areas that you thought this is safe, nothing can touch this, but then God's word exposes that and tears it down and begins you to draw you more and more to Christ. That was the experience that R.C. Sproul had when he was converted. He tells the story, uh, uh, it, was, it was in his first week of his freshman year at college. He was not a believer, and he and a friend of his decided that they would go out uh, and check out the local bar scene. But before they did, he had to go back into the dorm lobby to buy another pack of cigarettes from the vending machine. And so he and his friend went back in and they were both on the football team and there they ran into the captain of the football team and the captain of the football team said, why don't you come over and talk to me a little bit? And R.C. Sproul said he was the first person he'd ever met in his entire life who spoke of Christ as though he were a reality, not just an idea. He says, I'd never heard anything like it. I was absorbed. I sat there for two or three hours. He didn't give a traditional evangelism talk. He just kept talking to me about the wisdom of the Word of God. He quoted Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 3, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where it falls, there it will lie. And I'm certain I'm the only person in all of church history that was converted by that verse. <laughs> but he says, God took it and struck my soul with it. I saw myself as a log that was rotting in the woods, going nowhere. And he says, when I left that man's table, I went up to my room, and in my room by myself in the dark, I got on my knees, and I cried out to God to forgive me. And a lifetime of faithful service, building up the saints of the Lord, followed because someone was willing to speak the word of God to R.C. Sproul. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, something that we would never think is a powerful word, and yet it had the, the, uh, the power to change a heart and to break down rock And to lift up a valley. And it happened as God sent his word. And that's what we need. If we will be prepared to experience God's mercy, we need to hear God's powerful word speaking to us. And we also need God's powerful word confronting us in our complacency. There is no other word to explain what John's ministry was about than confrontation. Verse 7 he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. Now, well, here is John winning friends and influencing people. Except he's not really concerned with all that. John wouldn't have been impressed by all the books that have been written in recent years about church growth, gathering a following. He wouldn't have had some Instagram account where he would check every day and make sure that enough people were liking his post. He didn't care about all that. He was was about getting down to the bottom of the problem that these people were mired in. He was about getting down to the problem of sin. He was exposing the complacency in in these verses of people who want all the benefits of redemption and all the benefits of repentance without doing any of the work of repentance. In verse 3, it gave us a summary of his mission he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins now that's a little bit of a convoluted phrase but but if you wanted to you could put hyphens between uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins that's what the baptism was about the baptism wasn't about forgiveness of sins but the repentance was about forgiveness of sins and the baptism was about the repentance and so as people would come out he would proclaim to them repent which is a word that means to turn around, to do an about face, to have a complete change of mind, to stop going in this direction and start moving in the other direction. He would tell them to repent, and as as a visible sign, a ceremony showing that someone had made that turn, he would call them to be washed and to have their bodies cleansed with water. And yes, It's true that later uh, we read that John's baptism is replaced with Christian baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But for the time being, as God's anointed prophet, this was God's sign for the people. This was a baptism of John to show repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But you know the problem with signs and ceremonies in the church is always that people begin to think that merely participating in the sign and the ceremony is enough to get what that ceremony is all about. And that's what was happening. People were coming to John to be baptized, not uh, because they were repentant, but because baptism is what you do. This is the new craze. Everybody's getting baptized. Let's go out and get baptized. Maybe it will help. And there is this gaping hole left by sin in the hearts of these people, and they think that a little bit of water, a little bit of ceremony, a little bit of hocus-pocus can give them what they need and peace with God and fill that hole in their consciences. And John says that's the way snakes think. There they are, out in the desert under some shrub there, and it's a, a nest of vipers. You light that shrub on top, and what do those snakes want? Self-preservation. They just want to slither away to some other hidey hole where they can keep being snakes and not have their fundamental nature changed or challenged in any way. And John is saying, if you are simply trying to run and flee from the wrath of God without changing any of your nature, you're going in the wrong direction. Don't think that you can put your trust in a little bit of ceremonial participation Don't be so complacent with your sin. Don't look at your sin and think that it's so small that merely washing the outside of your body can deal with these problems in the depth of your soul. You brood of vipers, he says. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Because apart from real repentance, trusting in outward signs is useless. So too is it useless to trust in our personal connections. That's the other complacency that was at work in the hearts of these people. And as we read through the New Testament, we find that this is a characteristic problem of the Jews in the time of Christ. That they were trusting in their connections. They were trusting in their genealogy. They believed that simply because they were the offspring of Abraham, that they were guaranteed to be saved from the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And John says, don't even go there. Verse 8, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What need does God have for genetic sons and offspring of Abraham? Is the Lord sitting around in heaven somewhere? I I hope there are enough genetic offspring of this one person. I, I, I hope I can do something with them because I have no other options. No, the Lord who calls into existence the things that do not exist is able to raise up sons for Abraham from stones. As I heard one other preacher say, the Lord is able to raise up Presbyterians from these seats. (laughs) Don't think that our personal connections and our heritage and our pedigree is all that important when it comes to salvation. This, by and large, is not uh, the complacency that we deal with, I think, in our time. It was one of the major sins in the New Testament, but sometimes I still run into this. Every once in a while, I'll run into someone out uh, somewhere who, who's not a believer, and they ask me what I do, and I, I'm a minister. I, I've learned to say minister in New England because you say pastor, and people have no idea. They say, so I'm a minister. And they, they don't have any sort, of, uh, any sort of religion of their own, but there's that, almost that impulse that they've got to justify themselves to me of all people. And so they'll say something like, oh, I'm not religious. You know my mother was, though? Boy, was she religious. I mean, she was in church every time it was open, and she's, she's been dead for about 10 years now, but I think she's probably praying for me, and so I think I'm covered. I've heard that. And the people who said it were being truthful. That's what they thought. I've got someone somewhere who is praying for me, and so I, I've got connections. I don't need anything else. Friends, the Lord doesn't save us because we have Christian grandparents or a Christian spouse or Christian friends. The Lord does not forgive our sins because we've raised our hands or had our bodies washed or walked down an aisle or signed a commitment card. The Lord does not save us because we're able to go through an examination with the Board of Elders and now we're members in good standing of the Presbyterian Church of America for crying out loud. None of it holds any water apart from true repentance and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are trusting in ceremony or connection or any other thing without true repentance, you need to know how useless and how damnable that is. That is the message. The axe is laid even now at the root of the tree and every tree that does not bear good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Folks, we don't have to think too long and too hard about what he's trying to say here. This is a picture of damnation. This is a picture of eternal judgment. So very often in the New Testament, the the imagery of hell comes to us in the imagery of fire and we want to look at that and we're just, well you know it's it's metaphorical it's who knows if it's an actual lake of real fire and all these other things but this this far we know that even if it is not uh, more than eternal fire it is certainly not less the torment of hell is unspeakable and unthinkable and john is telling these people without true repentance There is no other option but then to receive the wrath of God coming to us and due to us for our sin. I want you to understand this very clearly. We are not saved because of our repentance. At the end of days, as we stand before the Lord, none of us will be able to say, well, Lord, you should have mercy on me because I repented really well. Better than anybody else I know. We are not saved because of our repentance, but no one will be saved without repentance. There is no hope of salvation if you cling to your sin, if you refuse to acknowledge it and to surrender it to the Lord. If you find that you are engaged in God's Word and it's speaking against some behavior, some attitude, some desire in your life, and rather than confessing it, rather than in struggling to, to get rid of it, you are increasingly more and more comfortable with it. That is a very dangerous place to live. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness for sins. That's the message of John. God's powerful word comes to confront our dangerous complacency. And when it does, it leads us into true repentance. This is our final point. And this really is the enduring legacy of John and his ministry, is that he so clearly shows us what repentance looks like. Do you notice that's the question that everybody's asking in verses 10 through 13? Bear fruit, he says. Bear fruit, he says. And three times in verses 10 through 14... What do we do? What does that look like? What, how do I know that, that repentance is in my life? How do I know that the Lord is working in my life to affect repentance? How can I see it? How can I know it? What does repentance look like? And he tells us, and this is your bonus three-point sermon within a three-point sermon, that repentance shows up in our lives in at least three areas. It shows up first having to do with our possessions. That if you want to see repentance, if you're looking for repentance in your life, look first to the way you deal with the things that you have, all of your stuff. We see this very clearly in, in verse 11 as he responds to the crowds, and he tells them that those who have more than enough ought to give those who have less than enough. Whether that means clothing, whether that means food, the first sign, one of the first signs of a truly repentant heart is a generosity toward those in need. That's where he begins. But then he goes on, and you notice is he interacts with the tax collectors and the soldiers, he's talking to them about possessions as well. This is really a common thread that runs throughout all of this. And he tells uh, the tax collectors and the soldiers, don't engage in sinful practices just to get more stuff. Don't love possessions so much that you will cheat and defraud and, and harm other people just to get more possessions. Don't sell off your soul just to line your pocketbook. And here is where we're looking at John and we realize that he is certainly no 21st century American evangelical. Doesn't John know the first thing about repentance and piety? Doesn't John know all of the passwords and the shibboleths that you're supposed to use to let everybody else in our modern contemporary evangelical culture, to let everybody else know that you're really serious about your faith? Doesn't he know that in America you can get a total pass on the sin of materialism so long as you denounce the sins of homosexuality, adultery, and abortion? Why doesn't he start there? Why doesn't he go to the big ones? It's almost as though John has this crazy idea that you can know where your heart is by looking at where you have put your treasure. It's almost as though John actually believes that those in this world who ignore the sick and the naked and the hungry and the imprisoned and the stranger, it's almost as though those are guilty of turning their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's almost as though John actually believes that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. We say, where would John get those ideas? Most likely, he didn't get them from our churches. Most likely, John would not have gotten those ideas by watching the ways that many of us, and folks, I include myself, but I include you too, John would not get these ideas by looking at the way that we spend our money and count our savings and turn our backs on those who are in need because, quite frankly, the government will take care of them. And if they're poor, it's probably because they have made bad decisions. But he doesn't say, give your tunic to the one who is the deserving poor, the one who's fallen on a stretch of bad luck, and you're hoping that he'll recover, but really he's got a good soul. He simply says, if you want to see repentance in your life, look first at how you handle your possessions. Secondly, John is telling us that true repentance, well, it has to do with our callings. You notice that when he interacts with the tax collectors, when he speaks to the soldiers, he's dealing with them in their own neighborhood. He's dealing with the sins that they are most prone to ignore. You know how this works. You know enough about tax collectors to know that all of their livelihood really depended on their being able to collect more than they owed to the Romans. That way they could fill their own pockets. And the more you can collect, well, that's better. But everybody just has to pay up anyway, so you might as well gouge and, and steal, basically, and defraud your, your fellow Jews in order to pay the Romans and pay yourself. And then there are the soldiers, the men with, with muscles and weapons, the guys who could, uh, could force themselves into somebody else's money bags, the men that could plant the right evidence, ruin some poor sap who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And in both situations, John calls them to repent of the sins that they would be most drawn to. What does this mean? Well, it means that if you're a stay-at-home mom, it is unlikely that God will call you to repent of the sin of climbing over your coworkers while you're trying to go up the ladder of success. Probably not a sin that you need to worry about. Maybe, but I doubt it. It also means that if you happen to work in the engineering department, the sin the Lord is going to call to you to repent of is probably not intentionally over-promising in some sales meeting so that you can get a sale and close a deal and meet your quota. But it does mean That the Lord is far more interested that we repent of the sins that are actually most alluring to us. So if you are that that housewife, it might mean that the Lord would call you to repent of bitterness, discontentment. It may mean, if you are that engineer, that you may be called to repent of your perfectionism and your self-reliance. And the young woman may have to repent of her immodesty, and the young man may have to repent of his slavishness. And you could go on down the line, and you could list, here's where I am, and here's what the Lord calls me, but the Lord is interested that we repent of our own sins rather than somebody else's sins, because we have enough of our own staring us in the face every day. Dale Ralph Davis tells this story. I've been hoping to use this in a sermon for years. Del Ralph Davis uh, tells this story of a young English housemaid Uh, sometime around uh, the time of the Puritans uh, who, who was called to faith. She was converted and she went to meet with her minister to tell him that she had trusted in Christ. And over the course of their conversation, this minister leaned over the table and he asked her, but how do you know that you've really been converted? And she thought for a minute, she said, well... I know that I've been converted because now when I clean a room I also sweep under the rugs. And that's it. Doing the job that she's been paid to do that she's been skirting the entire time and it's this tiny little thing and it's it's just sweeping under the rugs instead of around the rugs but it's repentance where she is. It's this very ordinary repentance that has everything to do with her calling and her station and she's sensitive to the Lord and she's saying this this is what repentance looks like. And so it may be as simple as, as doing the job you're being paid to do. It may be as simple as, or as important as tax fraud and extortion, but the Lord calls us to repentance in our callings. Now the last of our 3rd subpoints and our third point. Uh, the, repentance actually has to do not just uh, with our deeds, but with our attitudes. And this is perhaps uh, the hardest of the three to wrap our minds and our hearts around. You notice... Uh, that when John interacts with the soldiers, the last word that he gives them is to be content. That was part of their repentance. And suddenly when you see that, you realize that repentance all along has been more than what you do. It reaches down to deal with our desires, and that means that if repentance has got to get below the surface, then the problem of our sin is below the surface as well. That our sin isn't just about outward conformity to a few rules and regulations, but our sin is about our desires and it's about the very core of our being and in our heart of hearts who we are. And this is why John's ministry was only ever, as powerful and as moving as it was, John's ministry was only ever a ministry of preparation. It was never meant to declare to the people that if they they could repent perfectly, then that's where salvation was to be found but his job was to point beyond repentance in order to show men and women and boys and girls their need for the one who was perfect. John's ministry was a signpost pointing beyond him to the Savior who's come into the world to pay the penalty for our sins, to deliver us from our false desires, to deliver us from our half-hearted repentance. It was meant to show us the one who is himself pure and unstained, the one who has nothing to repent of, Jesus Christ who came to us in our complacency and our sin. Christ the Lord who gives us his Holy Spirit that we may walk with him in newness of life. And folks, if you have never tasted true repentance, you are not yet ready to look to him and see his mercy. But if you have, by the word and spirit of God, tasted repentance in your life, and it's not perfect, it's a struggle, and it's a, It's a toiling, uphill battle every day. It doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be true. And true repentance comes by the Spirit of God, working as we read His Word. If that's at work in your life, the whole point is so that you would give up more and more the trust that you have in yourself, and you would look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who is able to deliver you from every sin and iniquity. And so let us turn together and look to Christ as we come to his table. Please join me in prayer. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for this preparatory work and ministry of John the Baptist. We pray that you would be at work in the hearts of your people as well. O oh Lord, draw our eyes to see our sin. And having seen our sin, draw our eyes to see Christ. To behold him as he is seated at the right hand the throne of power, interceding for your saints, pleading the cause of your people. The Lord, cause us to trust in him. We pray that you would give us new endeavor after new obedience, work continued repentance in the lives of your people. May we not walk away from this place more complacent, but having heard your word, make us responsive to your spirit, that we would put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we would live more and more unto Christ. Oh, do a work in our hearts. Make us sensitive to our sin. Make us to see our sin. Make us to hope more and more in Christ, we pray. In his name, amen.